black women were creating the list. This is what it means to have a hot girl summer. So we saw all this engagement. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 85 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Kaisha Jennings from North Carolina State University about her research into what the wildly popular meme, Hot Girl Summer, spawned by hip-hop phenomenon, Megan Thee Stallion, tells us about changes in the ways in which black women cultivate community in digital spaces. Here's Kaisha Jennings. Hi, my name is Kaisha Jennings, and I'm a PhD student. I'm also an English lecturer and faculty mentor at North Carolina State University. I identify as a hip-hop scholar, a multi-hyphenate creative, a hip-hop feminist, and a freelance writer. So in short, I write, teach, speak, and research about hip-hop and Black culture in both academic and non-academic spaces. I grew up in New York City, in Jamaica, Queens, New York, and came to North Carolina to pursue my master's degree at North Carolina A&T University. And that was in 2010. I went to A&T to pursue a degree in African-American literature because I wanted to teach literature, specifically African-American literature at the college level. And so I taught at the community college level for about six years. And I really dragged my feet to coming back to get the PhD. I knew it was always a goal, but I just needed some time. (laughs) I need some time away from academia. Um, But it was always the goal. So even prior to starting my PhD program, I still operated as a scholar. I was still interested in publishing. I was still interested in presenting at conferences, attending symposiums. I was doing all these scholarly things that typically at the community college level, faculty are not engaged in. And so NC State had a job opening and it was my out to get to a space that was more progressive and caring about black scholars. And it's been amazing at NC State ever since. Whether your tastes lean toward NPR or TMZ, BET or SNL, you'd almost have to have been living under a rock to at least not to have heard of Houston rapper Megan Thee Stallion. According to Google Trends, her first breakout moment came when she appeared on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon in February of 2020. And unfortunately, the public's interest in her skyrocketed the week of July 15th when she was shot by rapper Tory Lanez. Her celebrity was most recently sealed, though, when she appeared on Cardi B's number one single, WAP, this August. But it was a year earlier that Megan Thee Stallion began her rise to fame with her songs about Hot Girl Summer, which went viral on social media throughout the summer of 2019, and which continues even today. We began our conversation with Kaisha by asking her to describe just what a Hot Girl Summer is. Megan Thee Stallion, she deemed that the summer of 2019 was a hot girl summer. And what she meant by that is that it was a time and a space for women, specifically Black women, to live their best lives. And so that could be defined as broadly as someone would want it to be defined. But then, of course, social media co-opted it and made it negative and associated hot girl summer with like promiscuity, And all negative identities, which then forced her to offer a more clear, specific definition of Hot Girl Summer. And in her definition, she expanded it to include men and women. And in short, she basically says that Hot Girl Summer is just about having fun with your friends, you know, about being happy, about having a good time, about celebrating life. And if I'm not mistaken, 
in her song, she says something about real hot girl-ish. And that became her moniker. This idea of being a hot girl was her rap persona, so to speak. And then it just took off. So young black women just was attracted to this idea of being a hot girl and, and whatever that meant for them. And so when that took off, that's when she came out with the song, which featured Nicki Minaj. You know, it would make sense for her to make a whole entire song about a hot girl summer because it was blowing up to the point where clothing companies and popular blogs that do not cater to black audiences, they were using it pretty much to brand their brand, pretty much stealing uh, her idea and trying to capitalize off the popularity of Hot Girl Summer, even Wendy's. There was this whole thing on Twitter where Wendy's was incorporating themselves in the discourse of Hot Girl Summer. But I, I, I don't think the song is as important as just the catchphrase itself that allowed Black women to want to attach and associate their identity construction to the catchphrase. Memes, once shared in public spaces such as Twitter and Instagram, routinely mutate into forms that may no longer communicate the same symbolic meaning as it did at the beginning. Hot Girl Summer was no different, and as it spread, the interpretations of its meaning began to take on derogatory meanings used to feed negative stereotypes of black women. Doug and I were curious to hear how this motivated Kaisha to take on this meme as the focus of her article. As a millennial, I participate in these social media spaces, and I was noticing Kakosama becoming this phenomenon, and I was also noticing the conflicts with it, the negativity that mostly men were putting on the catchphrase, but then also how Black women were using the catchphrase in these multiplicity ways, these like nuanced ways that didn't align with the negative and had nothing to do with promiscuity, had nothing to do with wanting to expose oneself, had nothing to do with anything negative, but more so uh, just celebrating their summer. If you search through the hashtag, you would see anybody from a celebrity to a non-celebrity, all ages, using the hashtag if they're at the beach, if they did well in school, if they were just having a night out with their friends, just all these variety of different settings and reasons to identify or label it as having a hot girl summer. And so initially I wanted to do a textual analysis of the hashtag to unpack these conflicting meanings or understandings of what it meant to have a hot girl summer. And then also we saw this participatory culture thing happening where black women were creating lists. This is what it means to have a hot girl summer. So we saw all this engagement, whether they were trying to remix, to improve, enhance, just kind of speak to what a hot girl summer meant specifically for them. But there was just a lot of engagement in terms of how it's related to our identity. I sometimes joke, and I use that word loosely, that I didn't set out to be a professor. I just got my application to film school rejected and ended up in English Lit. It might have ended there, but my last year of my bachelor's program, I discovered that what we've been exploring about constructivism in the arts was also a heated topic of debate in the study of instructional systems as well. So I ended up earning my master's and PhD in that discipline. But while my current research interest concerns psychometrics, statistics, and machine learning, 
I've never lost my affection for my roots in the humanities. So I was interested in learning Kaisha's process for carrying out research in the field. Whenever I approach research, oftentimes I start from the humanities, but what I do ends up being interdisciplinary and kind of falls into digital humanities. And then sometimes it might fall into literature, but I'm always looking for ways to unpack and explain meaning or make sense of what's happening. That's always my goal, to find something that's interesting and pull it apart, break it apart into these smaller pieces to then be able to have in-depth conversations about what's happening, why it's important, who it's impacting, who it's impacting in a negative and or positive way. I also like to look at how it's being engaged with, whether it's within the academy or outside the academy. So the goal is always to think critically about the topic as much as I can, and then to also build on the scholarship of those who came before me. And so with these digital spaces, we're able to take the discourse outside of the academy. Black feminists and hip-hop feminists, they have long said the importance of reaching a wide population of Black folk, not just the elite, not just those who have been deemed smart because they attend the university. So a lot of times academic texts are not accessible to broader audiences because you need a login to reach the article. And so with social media, it changes all of that. It disrupts all of that. And I would say with millennials, and when I say millennials, I mean folks who are in their 30s and they've been able to be introduced to spaces that weren't meant for us while still maintaining in affirming the spaces where they come from, we see social media influencers trying to bridge that gap between academic spaces and non-academic spaces and make the scholarship available to everyone. The work of Jamaican-American author and award-winning journalist Joan Morgan seeks to make space for a feminism to exist that would, quote, allow Black women to explore who they are as women, not victim one that claimed the powerful richness and complexities inherent in being Black girls now. As Morgan's work was foundational to Kaisha's interpretation of Hot Girl Summer, Doug and I asked her to tell us more about her influence. Jo Morgan, she is popular for coining the term hip-hop feminist, and her seminal text, When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost, she brilliantly writes about this state of conflict of critiquing and being disappointed in hip-hop's misogynistic spaces and hip-hop's sexist spaces, but also enjoying parts of that. Also enjoying parts of hip-hop that makes you kind of feel bad about yourself, but understanding that there's There's like, she calls it the gray space. And to quote her, she says that she needed a a feminism that will allow her to accept and explore these gray spaces, right? To be able to exist in these gray spaces. And the gray space is the area where it's not either or, it's not binary. And that resonated with the whole heap of women because we are still able to speak to her text and her definition of what it means to be a hip-hop feminist. 
that's not the only scholarship of Morgan. I also quoted the questions that she posed in her article, While We Get Off, Moving Towards a Black Feminist Politics of Pleasure. In that text, she's questioning our ability to kind of be able to understand uh, Black female subjectivities, right, in a way that allows us to have a better understanding of pleasure as it relates to the experiences of, of Black women. But I think Morgan's text, more than anything, this area of the gray space is what's most important because it, it shows that, you know, nothing is singular, like nothing is in black and white, nothing is singular. Identities are not either or. They are multifaceted. They are inspired by a lot of different places and things. We shouldn't kind of be narrowed into this limited identity. Building on Joan Morgan's work, Kaisha applies what she calls digital hip-hop feminism sensibility to Hot Girl Summer. She defines it as an encouragement towards a particular epistemology of self that's performed in digital spaces and embodies Morgan's hip-hop feminist ethos. Through it, participants co-opt pleasure politics for the purposes of celebrating behaviors that are often demeaned by broader culture. So Ryan and I asked Kaisha if she could walk us through an example of digital hip-hop feminism. Even if we go back to the most recent example of her and Cardi B's newest single, WAP, for a number of reasons, the world went crazy, but there was a lot of like digital hip hop feminist sensibility happening. Every time a black woman had to explain or offer a justification or a reason why these two artists should be able to sing this song or rap this song, or every time a Black woman had to give a historical lineage of music that has been talked about pleasure and sexuality in owning, those are all examples of digital hip-hop feminist sensibility, whether they identify as a hip-hop feminist or not. They are enacting the sensibilities of what it means to be a feminist. They are sticking up for two women who identify as Black. Um, so the two recent things are really good examples of social media spaces and the ability to enact a digital hip hop um, feminist sensibility. And so the way that Black women were supporting and defending Megan and anybody else who were using the term hot girl summer shows the communal aspect of social media in the digital spaces that we didn't have before. We didn't have this visual communal aspect and we're seeing that right now literally right now so with the whole conflict between megan and tori and her being harmed via a gunshot wound none of the male rappers have stood up to say anything uh, against tori lane and so there's been that conversation about black women and domestic abuse and um, black women and violence but one male rapper he did stick up and say something but someone retweeted and said but didn't you attack a woman two years ago on social media called him out for like his behavior towards black women. So that's happening right now on Twitter as we speak. And we're still seeing that communal support, the communal rallying to defend black women. And unfortunately it's always, the labor is always done by other black women. I wonder like what is the psychological impact of black women always having to show up for black women? I, I even hate to just limit it to just misogyny because it's deeper than just misogyny. It's a bigger problem. What we're seeing, the silence of other men not speaking out for Megan, not defending Megan, victim blaming, 
what is the psychological impact on black women always having to be the ones to show up and protect other black women? On multiple levels, digital hip-hop feminism is in direct contrast to the notion of respectability politics, a centuries-old strategy for racial progress first articulated by Harvard's Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham in her 1993 book, Righteous Discontent. Kaisha argues that the intersection of hip-hop feminism and pleasure politics is necessary for understanding how we engage and understand Black women and girls in the current social-cultural landscape. We'll hear how she defines and applies these terms after this short break. Thousands of conversations about scholarly content happen online every day. At Altmetric, we track a range of sources to capture and collate this activity, helping you to monitor and report on the attention surrounding the research you care about. Do you know who's talking about your research? For a free, visually engaging and informative view of the online activity surrounding your scholarly content, visit altmetric.com products. Now back to Passing Science. Here again is Kaisha Jennings. Respectability politics, it stems from the women of the, the 1900s who felt that they had to be a representative of the race. And to be a representative of the race, you have to uphold a certain set of moral standards. And during that specific time, those moral standards were the moral standards of white middle-class women, right? For a Black woman, showing your sexuality or owning your sexuality wasn't a part of um, respectability politics. It wasn't a respectable thing to do. The scholar Regina Bradley, she discussed respectability politics in plain English recently on Twitter. You know, she was telling a story and she said, it's when your grandparents tells you that you're not being ladylike. Whatever it means to be ladylike, if you deviate from that, then you are not being respectable. You are categorized as like promiscuous, loose, and all the other terms that try to demean um, women for honoring and owning their femininity in, in all of their femininity. And so when we talk about trying to reject respectability politics, it's important to point out that it's okay for a woman to be able to talk about sex. It's okay for a woman to admit that they enjoy sex. It's okay for a woman to want to dress however they want to dress without having these standards that try to ultimately oppress them. And so with pleasure politics, that's the opposite. The chorus of Megan Thee Stallion's 2020 song Savage goes, I'm a savage, classy, bougie, ratchet, sassy, moody, nasty. A slang word that's often used today as a term of empowerment among women, ratchet is a word that, like pleasure politics, subverts traditional sexual dynamics, as Kaisha explains next. So the term clearly has entered the the lexicon of AAVE, African American Vernacular English. And so when used, the user would know it, whether it's good, bad, negative, or not. You get what I'm saying? I mean, it could change really quickly, but it depends on the context in terms of how it's being used. And so I've been working on an article on Cardi B. It's not about Cardi as more so as it is about affirming the lives of all Black girls. And what I've been doing most recently is using women in hip-hop as an entry point to 
talk about black women and girls in an academic context. But the title of that article is actually Ratchet and Intelligent as Ever, a critical reading of Cardi B as a digital hip hop feminist. And there's this scholar, her name is Montanique McEachern. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I probably didn't. She has this amazing article. She does this reading of Ratchet. It's really, really good. And it's allowing me to build upon what she offers in this this new piece that I'm working on about Cardi. So yeah, there's a, a there's a few Black women scholars who do work around performativeness of ratchetness, around uh, ratchetness in general. Montanique's article is titled Respect My Ratchet. And her argument definitely aligns with a digital hip hop feminist sensibility, which makes it interesting to see that Black women who happen to be in the academy, that they're thinking about similar things. And these similar things that they're thinking about are relevant to the lives of everyday Black women. In her article, Kaisha points out that Black women's sexual agency and expression have been policed since enslavement. And so it's not surprising that some men offer unrequested critiques of such things, like Black women's twerking. She refers to such misogyny directed towards Black women, in which race and gender both play roles, as misogynoir. As we were previously unfamiliar with it, we asked Kaisha to unpack the term for us. Yeah, that was coined by Moya Bailey. She is a, a digital scholar. Her work primarily exists on Twitter or within spaces on Twitter. It allows us to just kind of hone in on how misogyny affects Black women differently than it affects non-Black women. There are like specific, unique ways where misogyny impacts these intersections of race, gender, and identity, kind of similar to Crenshaw's intersectionality. And intersectionality allows us to better understand why misogynoir is needed as a term, right? Because it allows us to see in a heightened manner how Black women are impacted by misogynistic behavior. And so what's happening literally right now on social media things against Megan um, because of the incident that happened. There's a number of examples of misogynoir happening right now on Twitter. And a lot of it is because it's it's hard for, for people to understand her choosing to protect not only Tori, but also herself when it comes to the relationship that Black people have with the police. And her response to the incident is really layered it's layered in fact in terms of like black women's relationship to to men when it comes to like power, when it comes to domestic relationships and harm. Also, as it relates to black women and their relationship to state violence by the police, you know, she continued to say that the police were hostile from the time that they approached the car. And if I understood her live correctly, she said, why would I tell them that we had a gun in the car and they're already being hostile to us? In a perfect world, a Black person would feel like that they could trust the police and tell them I've been shot. <laughs> but knowing the results that have happened continuously for like the past forever, <laughs> it made her hesitant to be able to to tell the truth. And I'm sure somebody is r- going to write a paper about it. <laughs> We've wrapped up our conversation with Kaisha by asking her to discuss another example which she lays out in her article of how social media and digital spaces impact the trajectory of hip-hop feminism. 
the Smart Brown Girl Book Club. So I give the example of the Smart Brown Girls Book Club and how because of Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, the creator of Smart Brown Girls Book Club is able to do uh, phenomenal things with Black women's scholarship. Because again, the audience is not necessarily just for folks who attend elite universities or attend college. It's for everyone. So we're able to have these in-depth conversations in these social media spaces about a wide range of topics, whether the topic is revisiting Morgan's When Chicken Has Come Home to Roost, or whether the topic is Black women in their experience with domestic violence. And we're seeing that literally right now as we speak with what has happened with Megan Thee Stallion and her being shot by Tory Lanez. We are seeing folks engage in conversations. And sometimes Twitter doesn't allow for nuance for a number of reasons, but there is space where folks could have these nuanced conversations and put out these really valuable ideas about the experiences of Black women. That was Kaisha Jennings discussing her open access article, City Girls, Hot Girls, and the Reimagining of Black Women in Hip-Hop and Digital Spaces, which she published on June 1st, 2020 in the journal Global Hip-Hop Studies. You'll find a link to the article at parsingscience.org e85 along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials we discussed during the episode. You probably already know about Parsing Science's website and our toll-free message line, 1-844-XPLORIT. But did you know that we also tweet news about the latest developments in science, including many brought to our attention by listeners like you? You can follow us at Parsing Science, and the next time you spot a science story that fascinates you, let us know. We just might feature the study's researchers in a future episode. Next time, in episode 86 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Darwin Guevara from Michigan State University about his research exploring how placebos sometimes have the power to reduce neuromarkers of emotional distress, even in cases in which people are told that they're only taking a placebo rather than an active drug. One of the main goals of the project was to provide evidence that Dondoseth placebo effects were genuine psychobiological effects. And we thought that in order to advance this, you need to be able to demonstrate it. And we wanted to do that in a domain that we thought was robust to expectation-based placebo effects. We hope that you will join us again 